Well, good morning, church. Great to see you. Uh, I'm excited to preach this morning. By the way, I have my son visiting from San Diego, and he's here together with his lovely girlfriend, my son Robbie. Why don't you guys stand up, everyone? You can say hello. Yes, this is my son. And uh, Crystal, his girlfriend. Amen. Uh, as many of you know, Robbie recently came back to the Lord in his walk, and I got to tell you, God's just been doing miracles right across the board, and isn't it great to see? Absolutely. In the series that I've been preaching, Waiting for His Return, my message today, the title is The Wedding Invitation. And Jesus shares a parable about a wedding. And as I've always said or recently said, a parable is a truth of heaven that parallels what God wants to do on earth. Let's do that again. A parable. Jesus told many parables. And parables are a truth of heaven or truth from heaven that God wants to bring to earth and he wants it to parallel on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us, pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. And so we're going to look at this particular parable in just a moment. But very quickly, last week, there are two concepts that I mentioned constantly come up in the Bible when the Bible is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what they are? Number one, he's coming like, like a thief in the night. Good, it's not up there. You did good. Awesome. Give yourselves a big round of applause. Pretty good. I thought it was already up there. And secondly, He's constantly talking about, when he talks about he's coming like a thief, he says, be ready. Six times, six times it's mentioned in the same passage, he's coming like a thief, be ready. And last week we saw he said it in Matthew 24, verse 42 to 44. So Matthew wrote it in his gospel. Luke wrote it in his gospel in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. The Apostle Peter wrote it in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul, who wasn't around uh, listening to Jesus when Christ was on the earth, he got saved many years later, and the Apostle Paul mentioned it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 8. And John the Apostle, not the Baptist, John the Apostle, one of the oldest living disciples. He outlived all of them. The only one who wasn't martyred. He was put on the island of Patmos as a punishment for being a Christian. And on the island of Patmos, which was set up as a prison, it was impossible to escape. He got caught up in a vision and God showed him the end times. And in the book of Revelation... John records two separate events where Jesus talked about the fact that he's coming back to earth like a thief in the night suddenly and that the church needs to be ready. Today I want to share with you a parable and it's about the wedding that you and I are going to. And so if you open your Bible with me, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22 and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 14, and I'm going to interrupt myself many times as I'm reading this passage to break things down and explain them to you. <clears throat> so starting with verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now remember, a parable is a truth of heaven that God wants to run a parallel with here on earth. So Jesus is bringing truths from the Father's heart, and these are things that are going to happen here on earth. He spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, 
1981, how many of you remember the royal wedding between Prince Charles and Diana? Anyone remember that? Well, that wedding cost $48 million to put on back in 1981. I mean, that was one heck of a shindig. Would you agree? Absolutely, $48 million. Do you think the royal family was excited about this wedding? Now, it didn't turn out the way everyone had hoped it would be. It was not a wedding that where the bride and groom lived happily ever after. But I got news for you. The wedding that God is going to put on for his son and for his son's bride and everyone who is a born-again believer is part of that bride. And the wedding that God is going to put on for his son and for his son's bride is going to eclipse anything the royal family could have thrown. Can you imagine it? I mean, if humans spent $48 million, I know that God's not going to spare any expense. He's not going to go cheap. He's not going to Walmart. He's not going to Sands Club. He's not going to Costco. I mean, we are going to get the best of the best of the best. He might, he might actually ask Lydia to do some of the cooking. That'll be some banquet. But there was also another wedding in 1981. Uh, Sheikh Mohammed uh, married Princess Salama in 1981. And he ordered the construction of a stadium for his guests, 20,000 guests. And they uh, spent seven days celebrating this wedding. That's pretty phenomenal, seven days. I, I can imagine that the wedding in heaven will go on for a long time. It's not going to be a one-day one wonder. But this wedding is estimated to have cost over $100 million. Can you imagine receiving an invitation to a wedding like that? If the king is throwing a banquet for his son, and he's building a stadium to accommodate 20,000 people, and it is going to be the event of all events. And you personally get invited. And you live in that nation. And you're considered a special guest. How many of you would find a reason not to attend? I mean, the caliber of food that's going to be served up. I would make sure that under no circumstances... I would cancel everything in my planner. I would cancel everything on my agenda. And I would make sure that I was showing up just for the food. But aside from the food, the status. If the king personally invited me to show up for this wedding, I would make sure. I think you would make sure that you canceled everything on your agenda to show up for the wedding of all weddings. How many of you would agree? Come on, give me a big wave. Do you agree? All right, absolutely. A hundred million dollars. Wow. In verse 3, the parable goes on. Jesus continues and he says, He sent his servants, the king sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet. To tell them to come. But they refused to come. Now go figure. They are guests of the king to be present at the prince's wedding. And they refused to come. You see they had in their minds more important priorities. Verse 4, it says, Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come 
to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was so enraged that he sent his army and he, destroy, he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. Church, I want to tell you something, that while this is a parable and these people are invited to this wedding, and while we just looked at uh, the royal wedding of England in 1981 and uh, this other wedding that over $100 million was spent, we would make sure that if we were residents and citizens of that nation and the king had invited us, we would clear our planner. I mean, that's the event to attend. But in this parable, Jesus is speaking about a truth, a reality that he wants us to understand that there is going to be a wedding and God in heaven is going to have a wedding banquet for his son. But in this scenario, we're not just the invited guests. We are given the opportunity to be the bride of the king of kings. And Jesus says, God in the flesh is telling us that some people will have greater priorities in their life. Some people will say, I need to take care of my field. Others will say, I need to take care of my business. I'm about to earn my first million dollars. Others will get angry and actually punish the messengers who came to tell them that a banquet is about to be had. Now, when Jesus had said this, just prior to this, if you read the chapter before, Jesus had just descended from the mountain on a donkey, and the people were recognizing him as Yeshua, the Messiah, the King of Kings. He rides into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple because people were making trade in the temple and they were cheating. They were using dishonest weights and shortchanging people as they were buying turtle doves and lambs to sacrifice to God in the temple. And Jesus cleanses the temple and he says, my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. For all people to come and to pray. Well, the, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees heard the commotion. And they came out and they rebuked Jesus for cleansing the temple. And they shooed him out of the temple. Now what's really interesting about what leads up to this story is that while Jesus is sitting on the donkey on top of the mountain, he starts to weep. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you only had have recognized the coming of your God. The people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. But the religious leaders did not recognize the coming of their God. And so when Jesus rode down, he cleanses the temple. He gets kicked out of the temple. Very interesting. Very interesting because he goes to Bethany and the next day he returns to Jerusalem and on the way to Bethany he sees a fig tree and the Bible says it was not seasoned for fruit to be on the tree. And Jesus went to the tree and he rebuked it because it had no fruit on it and it died from the roots up. Next chapter, Jesus starts telling a parable, and he says, the king's servants went out, the, pre the prophets went out, and they told the, the nation about the coming of their Messiah. And they didn't recognize his coming. They were too occupied with their own self-agendas. And Jesus prophesied, that the king would have the city destroyed and the people would be punished. Do you know approximately 37 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire. The temple was destroyed and not one stone was left upon another. And the people were scattered around the earth 
And it's known as the great diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish people. And hence, they ended up in nations around the world without their own land. And Jesus was speaking to the people at that time, the Jewish people, and this parallel was paralleling a truth that was about to happen on the earth. They didn't know the temple was going to be torn down. They didn't know in just 30 plus years that their city would cease to exist and they would lose their culture. They would lose their language. They would lose their heritage and in many ways lose their identity. And for the next 2,000 years, they would be dispersed and scattered across the nations of the world and be hated and victimized. Remember I said a parallel, a parable is a truth of heaven that will parallel realities that will happen on earth. And Jesus was speaking to them that they would reject the invitation to the wedding. But here's an interesting thing. That what God does with one people group, he will do with every people group because God is a God of justice. I didn't get a loud amen. Maybe you know what's coming. I said what God will do with one people group, he will do with all peoples because God doesn't show favoritism. He is not unjust. And so in Luke chapter 21, around the same time period that Matthew's writing about here in Matthew 22, Luke writes down these words. In Luke 21 verse 24 Jesus says, these people will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Now listen. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You see, there are seasons in the spirit world. There, there's a time to sow there's a time to water, there's a time to prepare the land, and there's a time to reap the harvest. And the doors of salvation closed on the nation of Israel because they rejected their king. 2,000 years, the message was open to Abraham and to all of his descendants. At the rejection of Christ, the doors started to open to the Gentile world. And because of persecution in Jerusalem, the early church migrated from Jerusalem and they spread out around the world. Jesus told them, you will take this gospel first to Jerusalem, then to all of Judea, then to Samaria, the people you don't like, and this gospel will go to the whole world. The doors of salvation have opened to all non-Jewish people, Gentiles, the Gentile world. But Jesus also declared that a time will come that when the time of the Gentiles has reached its fulfillment, Jerusalem will be reinstated and the people of Judea will be brought back to their homeland. Church, I want you to understand that we are starting to witness the coming wrath of God on the nations of the world. And the doors of salvation are closing on the Gentile world as well. And the same way judgment came on Judea and on Jerusalem, judgment will come on the rest of the world and it will all come, uh, um, uh, accumulate and, and come to a place of accounting in what the Bible calls the Valley of Megiddo in Hebrew and the Valley of Armageddon in the Greek language. You've all heard of the Valley of Armageddon, correct? All right, in the Hebrew it's Megiddo, in the Greek it's Armageddon. The same way there was a time and a season for the Hebrew people, there is a time and a season for the Gentile people. And this parable, Jesus was speaking to the people then, but he was speaking to the people that were yet to come, and that's us. And the, when the king gets ready to put on a banquet for his son, a great wedding, an exorbitant wedding, that's why for us to send out 11,000 flyers, 
is a well worth, worthwhile thing to do. This is an investment in the kingdom of God. Can, can I get an agreement? I not only want you to show up for the wedding and not just be a guest, but to be that prepared bride, I want you to reach out and tell as many of your friends, come on, come to church, come, come this Palm Sunday, come Easter, invite them. They may not realize, but God is wanting to prepare them into a beautiful bride for his son, Jesus Christ. I know to the guys in the audience, you don't exactly feature seeing yourself as a bride. But there's neither male nor female in Jesus Christ. So I want to hear an amen from all the guys. Uh, We either have just one or two guys here today, or that was pretty pathetic. Come on, I want all the men in the house that are born again, stand up. Come on, stand up with me. Together with your pastor. It is an honor to be a bride to Jesus Christ. So if you believe that, I want to hear a hearty amen. 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 Praise God. All right, you can take your seats. Thank you, ladies, for encouraging them. I appreciate that. Jesus goes on with this parable. Church, hear me. He said that people that were invited had other priorities. Like, I can't come on Sundays. That's when we have sports for the kids. And I have to attend to my kids' needs. I want to tell you, the greatest need your child has is to be standing in a good place before Jesus Christ. Absolutely. There is no greater priority than having ourselves ready for when Jesus Christ returns. We get so busy with business. We get so busy with life that we don't make time for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the reality of this parable is that God is showing the reflection of people's hearts. Just like the parable of the ten virgins, they grew tired and weary because he didn't come the next day. And some were found without oil, extra oil in their lamps. And so Jesus is giving this parable to the church as much as he was giving it to the nation of Israel. God often says numerous things. When God prophesies, he prophesies on several levels all at the same time. When God speaks in his word, he's speaking to this person, but he's speaking to 10 million other people as well. How many of you have ever been church and, you know, I've preached and you felt like God was talking just to you? How many of you have ever felt like that? Good. Some of you haven't. I'll have to try harder. But what's interesting is that sometimes I'll hear a person say, Pastor, that message was just for me. I know God was talking to me. And 10 other people already told me the same thing. And God knows how to speak voluminous. He knows how to say and impart many messages to many people with the same message. And so here he is, he's preaching about the people of his day, but he's also preaching to the church today. Jesus is on uh, his ready mark, waiting for the Father to say, now is the time. And uh, when he does, the church, those that were meant to be at this wedding, need to be at the wedding. Can I get an agreement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, here we go. We're back. I've got a new iPad here, and for a moment it uh, changed pages on me. In uh, verse 8, he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. Church, let's get real for a moment. This wedding invitation is the invitation to be the bride of Christ. We're not talking about the bride of Frankenstein. 
We all grew up on those movies, right? We've watched The Bride of Frankenstein. This is The Bride of Christ. And we're not invited to be spectators. We're invited to be part of the main act. What an amazing grace that God would not only come to earth and clothe himself in flesh and pay the price for every stupid thing. And yes, I said every stupid thing. If my grandkids were in church right now, they'd say, Pa, you're not allowed to say that word. But I've done some stupid things. And I think a few of us, in fact, all of us have done some very regrettable things. God paid the price for every mistake I've ever made. But it didn't stop there. He said, I'm going to clean you up, fix you up. I'm going to give you an eternity in heaven. The apostle Paul says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. The mind can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. A hundred million dollar wedding is nothing compared to what God has prepared for his son's bride. This is a honeymoon that will never run out of honey. He'll go to the moon and back for us for the rest of eternity. We are center stage in this wedding. But here's the thing. Jesus gives this parable because the reality is that some people will become tired, careless, sidetracked, diverted. Their attention will be drawn to other things. And before we realize it, the things of God start slipping in their order of priority. And subconsciously, we start giving preference to other things. I'm going to speak about me for a moment. I don't deserve in myself to be invited to this wedding let alone be the one that Jesus is going to marry. And me personally, when I look at where I was and what God has done in me, and when I look at what he's promising me up ahead, I want to make sure that I give this thing, that I give this gig everything it deserves and that I give him the honor and the respect that he deserves. You see, our Christian walk and our Christianity is a thing of great honor and privilege. Now listen, I want you for a moment to do something just a little bit different for me. We're going to shake ourselves I want you to stand, and if you believe that being a Christian and being a bride to Jesus Christ is an honorable thing, I want you to stand right now. Come on, stand with me. And I want you to give the Lord a shout of praise. I want you to let Him know how excited you are about what's coming around the corner. Yeah! Thank you, Jesus. Yeah! Yes! 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 Praise God. All right, that was pretty convincing. All right, you can take your seat. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth. Here Jesus is paralleling that. And in the parable he's saying, the father said, go in the streets, find anybody. The poor, the broken, whoever. He says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Wow. Jesus is coming. 
He's coming like a thief in the night. And he wants his bride to be ready. You see, there's an interesting passage of Scripture in Revelations chapter 19. You see, everything in the Bible backs itself up constantly because this is the inspired Word of God. And you're going to find pretty much the same illustration in the book of Revelation. Here's John on the island of Bat. Patmos, but he's not on the island of Patmos anymore. He's caught up in a supernatural divine vision, and God is showing him wave after wave of what's going to happen. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 8, one split second of that entire vision, John writes these words, and this is what he's seeing. I heard what sounded like a great multitude. You know what that great multitude is? That's people from every tribe, every nation, every culture, every language who have been bought and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And John says, I heard what sound like the roar of a mighty rushing water. It was like loud peals of thunder. And I heard shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now hang on a second. On one hand, it says fine linen was given to her to wear. On the other hand, it says the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Let me clarify that for you. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have an amazing story of a high priest. His name was Joshua. Not to be confused with Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant, and who then took the leadership when Moses went on to be with God and brought the people into the promised land. This is a different Joshua. This is Joshua who was a high priest in the temple. And Zechariah writes about this high priest, Joshua. And in chapter 3, verse 3 to 9, it says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these who are standing here. So what we have is here's a high priest, but he's standing in the presence of God, and it's as if he's dirty and filthy. The Bible says that all of our good deeds really are like filthy rags in front of God's holiness and his perfection. And so he takes Joshua and he says, take off those dirty clothes. I'm going to give him a robe of righteousness. I'm going to put my righteousness on him. I'm going to put my turban on him. I'm going to crown him. And so we see a picture of God putting his righteousness on Joshua and cleaning Joshua up. Joshua didn't clean himself up. God cleaned him up and took away his sins. How many of you have been cleaned up by God and been given a robe of righteousness? If you've been given a robe of righteousness, come on, put your hands together and say, thank you, Jesus. But in verse 6, after God cleans him up and gives him robes of righteousness, which are 
symbolic of a new nature, a new heart, a new character. Then God says to him, now that I've cleaned you up and I've given you a righteousness that comes from me, he says, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house. You see, I can't save myself. My good works, all of my good efforts, all of my charity isn't enough to atone or to pay the price of all of my mistakes. If we put all my mistakes on a scale and all of my good works on a scale and I've been working really hard to do good things, the weight of my sin would outweigh the weight of my good works. And so God comes along and he says, I'm going to rectify this. I'm going to give you a righteousness that comes from me. I'm going to give you a righteous nature. I'm going to give you a new uh, personality. You're going to be a new creation. That's why the New Testament talks about if anyone is in Jesus Christ, behold, the old is past, the new has come. We are a new creation. Not only are our sins forgiven, but God deals with the sin machine inside of each and every one of us, and he puts a righteous nature inside of us. So positionally, God looks at me, and he sees me as his righteousness because of Jesus Christ, but also he puts the power of a righteous nature in each and every born-again Christian. Whoa. And so on the one hand, he clothes us with his righteousness, and he dismantles the sin machine, and he gives us a new nature, a new heart. Ezekiel prophesied about this. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give them a new heart and I will write my laws on their hearts so it'll be part of their DNA. It'll be part of their nature to obey me. And I will put a new spirit inside of them. That's what the day of Pentecost was all about. For the first time in human history after the fall, the Spirit of God actually came to live inside of man. And the reason why it didn't happen prior to Pentecost was because man was only covered by the blood of bulls and goats. But after Jesus died and he resurrected and his blood hit the altar in heaven, man has been cleansed for good in the eyes of God and he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. You see, so now we have a new nature and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and now God says to the high priest, now, if you walk according to what I've already accomplished in you, if you live up to what you have attained by grace, I will make you a leader amongst my people. Now let me prove to you that this is speaking to us. In verse 8, he says, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you are, are men who are symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Who's the branch? Who's the branch? Isaiah the prophet says, out of the root of Jesse will come a branch. That's Jesus. Uh, David was uh, 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 the son of Jesse, and out of David's lineage came Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And here, uh, the, God is telling the, the high priest Joshua, you are symbolic of men and of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, Jesus Christ. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The day that Jesus took his place on the cross. God paid the price of sin for all of humanity. And on that day, He who knew no sin became the sin of Rob Scarallo. 
He who knew no sin became the sin of Pastor Jan. He who knew no sin became the sin of Joe and Bonnie and each and every one of us. And through Jesus Christ, we were given the righteous nature of God the Father himself. You see, I'm glad that God doesn't just play make-believe and choose to look at me and choose to see me as righteous. I'm glad he went beyond that. He chooses to see me as righteous even when I slip up, but he slipped a righteous nature inside of me, inside of you. He has given us a new heart and he has written his laws on our heart. So it is just as natural for us to do right and to live godly as it was for us before to sin and live wrong. Amen. Amen. This salvation is a lot more than just writing my name in the book of life. This salvation is the restitution or the restoration of everything we have fallen from. And I got news for you. The restoration of all things, it just gets better and better. And as we move forward, there's coming a time where God will restore the heavens and restore the earth. And the completed picture, we will walk on the earth with God and everything will be as it was prior to the fall of the first Adam. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we see here very clearly that in Revelation, he hears this thunderous cry. And they say, worthy is the Lamb. And they give honor to the King of Kings. And here's a picture of the bride who's been given fine linen. And then it says she was given fine linen, but she also walked in righteousness. Pastor Carlos, do you think I could get that scripture from Revelations chapter 19 up on the screen again? Because I'm going to close, close with this. Thank you. You see, church, everyone look at me for a second. I could never earn this salvation. I could never be good enough. I could never pull myself out of my mess. God does that. And God has made me righteous. So now I don't have to try to make it or be good enough. He made me good enough. But he made me so good enough, girl. He changed what was on the inside. Tamika, you're an amazing story of God's grace. I'm an amazing story of God's grace. He didn't just say, okay, I'm going to erase the list of sin. If he didn't change me on the inside, there'd be a new, new list of sin in 10 seconds flat. He not only erased the list of sins, he changed us on the inside and he put the God stamp on the inside. He put the Christ nature on the inside so that the fullness of Christ really can come through each and every one of us. He doesn't play wink, wink, nudge, nudge, let's make believe you're good. He says, no, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. You can't earn this. You can't get there by yourself. I'm going to wipe away your past, but I'm going to do something fundamentally different. You're not just forgiven. You are transformed. Amen. If anyone is in Christ, he's forgiven. But what the verse says, well, that's true. What the verse actually says is if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Most Christians' concept of salvation is that they're stamped with the blood of Jesus, I'm forgiven. I'm stamped with the blood of Jesus, I'm forgiven. But that stamp is a mold. And the image of Jesus Christ has been put inside of my nature. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? I don't have to live a life of sin. 
There's a new nature inside of me. Oh, how I wish this was preached in churches and it was taught over and over again. Because most people are living under the gospel of forgiveness when God came to bring the gospel of transformation. Hallelujah. I am not just forgiven. I am redeemed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It's no longer I who lives but Christ who's living inside of me. The very nature, the very character, the very goodness of God has been put inside of this human body. Hallelujah. Yeah! The sin machine has been dismantled and the Christ-likeness has been put inside of each and every one of us. So he says to the bride, I will give you the wedding gown. But now live your life like a bride. Come on, stand with me. Praise God. Wow. He's coming like a thief. He said, be ready. You know, in the parable of the ten virgins, they didn't know when he was coming. Do you know that in a Galilean wedding, there's a peculiar custom? And that is that even the bridegroom doesn't know the day of the wedding. They make a covenant the bridegroom and the bride, and then they both go their way and prepare. The bride prepares for her wedding day, and the bridegroom starts adding on a a room to his father's mansion. You know what Jesus said? I go, but I go to prepare a place for you. The bridegroom is preparing rooms for his bride. And it's the father and only the father who decides in a Galilean wedding. The culture was that only the father decides when the wedding will be had. And so the son looks to the father. He doesn't know. And when the father says, now's the time, the son gathers his men and they start putting a noise out through the city. We're ready to have a wedding. And when the announcement comes, the bride needs to make sure that she had everything ready for the day of that wedding. This is a custom unique to weddings in Galilee in that day. And Jesus was drawing on the analogy of his contemporaries. Do you know that 70% of his preaching was done in the region of Galilee? That's right, 70% of his preaching. And he says, I'm going to come like a thief. He says, even the son doesn't know the day or the hour. The father knows. I am so glad that my sins are forgiven. I am so glad he's put a new nature inside of me. I wish this was preached in churches. We just, we hope and pray that every time we screw up, God, forgive me again. And we don't realize the strength and the power that's inside of us. I'm not just forgiven. I'm transformed. I want you to understand there's a new nature in you. You don't have a sin nature. Oh, but pastor, I sinned. Sure. Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature. They still had the power to choose to sin or not to sin. The fact that they sinned doesn't mean God created them with a sin nature. He didn't create them with a sin nature. They got a sin nature after. Jesus Christ came and he washes away our sin. But he tucks something deep down inside of us. He pulls out the plugs and all the wires of the sin nature of the first Adam. In the same way, you bore resemblance to the first Adam. 
now that the last Adam comes into your heart and you've embraced him and he's embraced you, he unplugs all of the circuitry, throws it out. So I'm not just forgiving you. Now you're going to be born again into me, the last Adam. And I'm going to plug my nature into you. And all the circuitry of who I am, I'm plugging in you. You see, to be a new creation is different than being a forgiven old creation. Most Christians really still think from the perspective of I'm a forgiven old creation. No. I'm forgiven and I'm a new creation. The very likeness, the character of Christ is actually here. That's why Paul says, Zach, be transformed by the renewing of this thing. I've already done the miracle here, but the six inches between your ears is still filled with old knowledge. And you still think you can't help it. You can't do better. That's a lie. I want you to rewrite what's in your mind and make it come into agreement with what's in my word. Because salvation is a lot bigger than just forgiveness. What Christ has done is much more than just writing our names in the book of life. He made us like himself. That's why we were born into the lineage of the first human being, Adam, and we got his sinful nature after the fall. But we are born again into Jesus Christ when we ask him into our heart. And the same way the old Nature that we had with the first Adam was kicking on all eight cylinders and causing us to lust, to lie, to hate, to want to get revenge. There's a new nature. It's the nature of the last Adam. And I need to speak to my mind and say, no, I don't have to. No, I can act different. There's a new nature in me. You see, that's the issue. I thank God for programs like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. The one grievance I have is that for the rest of their lives, they have to confess they're an alcoholic. That's what happens in man's plans of re-education. But in God's plan, I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a liar. I am not a pervert. I am not a sinner. I am a child of God. I am a new creation. He didn't just forgive me. He changed me. There's something magnificent deep down inside. But too often this is still programmed to believe we're just sinners saved by grace. No, I was a sinner. I am saved by grace. And I'm a new creation. And the power of righteousness and the power of godliness is now inside me. And I can, by faith, Live a godly life. The Holy Spirit is saying to the bride of Jesus Christ, come on, know who you are. God's given you the wedding gown. Now live like a bride. Act like a bride. Think like a bride. Smell like a bride. Be ready. The day is coming in a flash. Jesus will be here and his bride will be gathered up. I am who he says I am. And I am changed. I am different. I am in the likeness of the one who saved me. Would you close your eyes with me? 
you have never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, this is where it all starts. This is the most important thing. In fact, it's the most fun thing. Without him, we're good people trying our best, but we're lost. But with him, we're not just forgiven. He starts to change us in an instant. He puts his spirit inside of us. If you have never asked Christ into your heart, it doesn't matter how many candles you've lit in the past at Mass. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to Grace and Faith or any other church. That's not what makes you a Christian. It's a relationship, a want-to, an invitation. Jesus, come into my heart. It's like accepting the proposal. And until you accept the proposal, you don't belong to Him. If you have never asked Jesus in your heart and you want to do that today, quickly, all over this auditorium, raise your hand and say, Pastor, I want to invite Christ into my life. Thank you. I see that hand. You can put it down. Who else wants to accept Jesus today and say, yeah, Jesus, I know you died for me. You shed your blood for me. I've screwed up, but you're willing to fix me up. Who else ready to say yes to Jesus? (coughs) Maybe you've done that years ago. (coughs) Excuse me. But you've walked away. Today, just like my own son made a recommitment, it's time to come back and say, God, I'm sorry. I've been living on the wrong side of the fence. If that's you, this morning and you want to get right with Jesus whether you're watching by live stream or you're here in this building just put your hand up and say that's me thank you I see that hand thank you I see that hand I see that hand thank you it's about four or five hands God bless you you can put them down come on church give them a round of applause so proud of you so proud of you so proud of you so proud of you You see, this is the bride of Christ getting itself ready. We once walked with him, but hey, haven't really been living like the bride. This is getting ready. Letting your jars be filled with oil again. We're going to close with everyone repeating this prayer after me. Those who raised your hand the first time or those who raised your hand the second time. And everyone, everyone, bear witness and Pray this prayer after me. We're going to invite God, the God who loves us, into our lives. Invite Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. Dear God, I believe you're talking to me today. Jesus Christ, thank you for dying on that cross for me. You took my place so you could take my pain and take my misery. Jesus Christ, I acknowledge, I recognize that you are God and you came to earth in the flesh to save me. Forgive me today of all of my sins. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ, I want to walk with you. I want you to talk with me. I welcome you to live inside of me. Be part of me every second of the day. I am not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, that you will help me And you will strengthen me, and you will hold me in your arms. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and rising for me. And thank you, Father, for this great salvation. Church, you realize about five people
have either made a first-time decision or a recommitment of Christ. Isn't that what church is supposed to be about? <laughs> the heavens are changing. People's hearts are softening. Take those wedding invitations. Invite them to Palm Sunday. Invite them to Easter. Heck, invite them next Sunday. Who knows? There might be a wedding next Sunday. Hallelujah. God bless you, church. Go and live like the bride of Jesus Christ. You are a bride like no bride has ever been chosen by God. God bless you. Have an awesome week.